Hey, guess what? What? It's episode 26 of AB Testing. Wow. Holy cow, what are we doing? And yet again, we have a list of things that we don't know what we're talking about, but we're going to talk about them and see what happens. Yep. Every time we come here with like, that looks like about five minutes of material, but somehow we stretch it into longer. Yes. I wonder how many people play our podcast back at like a faster speed so they can get through it quicker. How do you do that? Like the the tools that I have? Playback tools. Like on YouTube, I do that all the time. I watch talks on YouTube at one and a half speed. Sure. So YouTube is very handy. For maybe that. no, but maybe if you just if that's like your thing, and it's if, if all three listeners say like we listen to you fast, I will. Maybe I should just make like two versions of the podcast: one at normal speed for the noobs, and then one like at one and a half or double speed, so you can get through. But this oh, time, oh, if people oh, want to get through the podcast you, fast, we're helping them out. Yeah, we started a little late here because Brent got lost. Yeah. Brent, Brent has come to uh, the lovely uh, confines of Lincoln Square. Yes, downtown Bellevue. Uh, as I've mentioned before, I used to work in Bellevue. I love it here. Uh, from where I'm sitting right now, I can see two different lakes. If we had gotten here a little bit earlier, we would have seen the sunrise. This doesn't help for the podcast, but the sunrise in that direction. Yeah, my office is right on the other side of that wall, so my view is that direction too. Yeah. 20th Uh, floor here, not bad. uh, My last building, I would uh, wake up and get to watch the sunrise over Rainier every morning. If only it wasn't so darn busy here, I would look out the window more. I guess so. No, no. What? Have your office facing the window. Work is fun, but busy. It's it's a, it's a good challenge. It's, yes. al- it's also really cool that when I walk the other way to get coffee, uh, it looks out over Seattle. I see like little tip of a space needle sticking up. Oh, that way. Oh, yeah. That way. That way. Yeah. All right. Wait, maybe I got a better idea for getting people through the podcast quicker. I'll just cut out all this boring crap. <laughs> Episode 26. Three minutes. <laughs> 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 the three minutes where Alan and Brent actually talk about testing. <laughs> oh yeah, and that's Alan, and I'm Brent. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so speaking of talking about testing, oh, uh, we're starting this one uh, off no, well. <laughs> look, I'm starting it off well. I'm sorry you're not along for the ride. I'll follow. Let's okay. go. Okay. So uh, yesterday, I was I have like an hour at my desk or two. And I'm getting some work done. Take a glance at Twitter. And I see, oh, there's a cast talk going on. I said, and I had no idea what it was about. I thought, I'll just listen in and see what's going on at cast. Oh, I'm guessing our listeners, I think one thing about people that listen to a podcast is that you actually pay attention to the internet. And if you're listening to our podcast, you're probably a tester who pays attention to the internet. So you probably know that cast is the conference, uh, the association of software testing. It's the context-driven schools conference. They do it once a year. And... Bum, bum, bum. Yeah. So anyway, the cool thing is that they – I don't know. Have how... we done a rant on the context school testing on this thing? I don't know. You know – It'll probably have the number of our listeners, but it, – It could. It could. I have nothing against the context-driven school. I just think it's entirely redundant. Uh, perhaps. Perhaps. Yes. Yeah. Um Anyway, what 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 was the con- the topic of the cast talk? I I was getting to that. I thought, but anyway, the cool thing is that they uh, they broadcast 
some of the talks, all the talks, I don't know. I only got a chance to listen to one, and not even all of it. I jumped in halfway through. It was a woman, Ioana uh, uh, Serban. Don't know the name. I, I, I followed her on Twitter because it was actually a good talk. I, the tweet I said about it, I'm going to give the punchline. Then I'll get a little about the talk, and then we can talk about that. And then we can do something else. And then this will all get cut from the the non-boring version of the podcast. <laughs> so the the last my, – my punchline was, it says, I hear so much I can't from testers. And it was great to hear – her message was just, just ask and go do it. And it was – and, and it was wrapped in some really cool nerd geek um, Dungeons and Dragons role playing game plus you know plus ten agility kind of you know things. It, it made it a good talk. I thought it was very well done. But the point is uh, beyond all the fun part that actually made the talk interesting, as opposed to ninety five percent of the talks I listened to or see, is uh, the core message was very good. Also, it says, "Look, if you you want the keys to the castle." As a tester, I want the castle, and and you and I take it for granted that we can that we see source code, we see we we can look at the the databases supporting our product in the background and and, and see how they're put together and how the schemas work, etc. And a lot of testers go are are very much. I'll be blunt here. They play the victim role. Well, we're not allowed to see the source code. Or if we see the source code, they think it'll we'll mess it up. And and, and I'm making the really whiny voice here, but you get the point. Yeah. Or, and she says, "Screw that." If you want to see the source code, ask to see the source code. If they say no, tell, ask them why not and say, look, I'm not going to wreck it. Just give me read-only access. I want to know how things work. Um, and same thing about you know, the databases and, and deployment. Says, well, you don't need to know how to deploy more shows. Yes, I do. What if I want to make my own test environment for some really invasive, destructive testing? Whatever you want to do, do it. And the cool thing was is she um, – and I'm going to get this wrong on the details because I was kind of working while I was listening. Sorry. She did this, eventually got the keys to the castle at her old job. It took like two years or some long, just because she was new and learning. And once she realized the keys to the castle were powerful, being able to have you know access to everything as a tester and to abstract as we do and, and go off on tangents here, we've talked a lot about that, that, that it's what generalists do. We want to know a little bit about how everything works so we can know where to dive in. Right. And it was good. It was so whenever I see somebody doing that, I really um, I get rah rah behind them. But she joined eBay a while back and took her about two and a half weeks to get the keys to the castle because she knew she needed them. So she knew how to ask and she had all the techniques for asking and, and being persistent. So I thought it was pretty cool. What exactly does the keys to the castle here mean? Keys to the castle. Oh, I mean, it's, escaping out of the metaphor. Oh, I'll leave the metaphor. <laughs> I, I can make a little like key key motion with my hand. So, uh, Keys to the castle are you have access to whatever you need to. Um, uh, you know how to deploy to environments. You can look at the databases. You, you have access to source code. Uh, you know whatever else. So in a uh, nutshell, the details you need respect. to know. A lot of it is yeah. So respect, maybe trust. Uh, I think, and you and I have seen this, but it's a lot more prevalent at other companies, especially smaller companies. Probably not as much as eBay, where the testers are. You're just you're not respected. You're the just you're you're on a different level than us because we're the ones writing code and making money for the company. You're just slowing us down, right? <laughs> that there's uh, that's the one thing that I was thinking of. A, a lot of the times, um, and again, it's been a while since I've been in a test role. But every time I went to a new team, I would always find a large pocket. Of, of my new employees who had 
firmly established themselves in a dysfunctional codependency relationship. Oh, and it, very we, similar to like domestic abuse. Have we talked about codependency on here before in testing? Because I bring it up. It's like it, I don't think we have actually. I, Maybe so we have. Maybe I tweeted. Somebody asked, what do you mean codependency and testing once? And I said, well, tell me if you've seen this. Developer says, here's my code. Please test it for me. Tester says, I found bugs in it. I feel validated because I did my job. Tester goes, thank you for finding my bugs. That was very nice of you. Please find some more. I found some more. I feel validated. And this, and this loop goes on. It's like, God, give me a break. Yeah, but that loop also not only – does the developer happy because he doesn't have to test his own code because he feels that it's a burden. The tester is happy because, hey, I did something useful. But that loop, as it repeats over and over and over and over again, it solidifies the perception that test is non-technical or test is... Um, uh, there was a comment I heard yesterday where... One of my mentees went to a team, and the, and the head holy of that team uh, didn't like tests. He's like, I'm just going to hire uh, high school interns to, to beat on the product, right? It's, it's viewed as something non-scientific. Yeah. So- and, and that enablement just re-solidifies that. And once that role is in, locked in, yeah, it, it's... The victimization of tests will persist. So let me um, – this is weird how this conversation comes to something that just happened yesterday I wanted to share with you. Oh. And just for context for people that haven't been paying attention to me because seriously, why would you? Uh, I'm on a team, uh, engineering team, uh, really no testers, but the asterisk I'll talk about in a second. About 70 people, I'm in charge of quality. I we are not completely without testers. I have we have half a dozen uh, vendors we use for testing, uh, mainly helping us get promoted to our dog food environment. A lot of other tasks they do actually do a bunch of things. But one thing I did recently was, you know, in the old days, you know, you had the one to one tester ratio. Here, here's your tester. Great, I'll put them under my arm. I'll carry them wherever I go. Probably, right. probably a Dilbert cartoon in there. And if you look at what's the ratio here, one to twelve. Uh, um, I, so it's you. Your personal tester is that's not the way we do it. We our testers do a bunch of different things, and they do some really great testing as well. One thing I did just late last week was I figured out a map of feature areas to testers and dev managers, so I could kind of plug them into standups, into uh, spec reviews, and uh, etc. Just a little bit as not as their tester, but as their liaison. So the, the the tester the the vendor tester that works for me uh, will work with a feature team here. It'd be sort of a liaison and bring that information back to their other testers, just so we could know when new features were coming in because we move very quickly and new features are coming in all the time. He's a spy. So it's it, it's the ease of communication. They figured yep. they were losing about twenty thirty percent of their time uh, of the day just tracking figure out how things were working. So this is supposed to eliminate that and make a little bit more connection. One thing I was worried about was will these dev managers now consider this person to be their tester codependency. <laughs> yeah. So I got unlocked. So yesterday I got some mail and it was from one of our, one of our DMS 
and said, hey, I'm an, I'll, I'll paraphrase here to protect the innocent because I'm, I didn't have a chance to sanitize. Say, so-and-so is working on a major refactor over the course of this week and a bit of next. The plan is to phase check in the work to avoid a huge change set with a lot of regressions. Good, good approach. And, and the question is, can we get an affinitized tester to work with them and run through a set of scenarios? And I'm thinking, and I thought, uh-oh, this sounds like they want. Yep. Yeah. I, yeah, I, yeah. So I very. You asked a clarifying question. I asked a clarifying question. I did. I said, what's the plan? Uh, are we going to check? Are these in like a local branch or by check-in? Do you mean they're going to dog food, et cetera? Then I said, our tester can make sure there aren't huge regressions, but we really expect that you guys do the testing. And. They replied back with the answer that I have that that, that was okay with me. Mm. They said, and this is good. This means that things are they're they're figuring it out. Mm-hmm. It says we're we're already doing a bunch of testing internally, including writing a lot of automation, and we're doing manual tests from these are developers. They're doing manual tests. I go okay, yes. The, the, now that the CDT guys are listening because they heard us like say that all testing is context driven. Now they're going, oh, man, it's not manual. It's it's some anyway. They're they're yeah. doing stuff that's not automated. Whatever. Anyway, I said I still want to dedicate a someone with a good. Oh, I'm paraphrasing here. Someone with a good STE mind to do some exploratory testing, and and it's like okay, that's that's a service we can provide. Brent's making a little face, but. It's warning, like, warning, oh, wait, warning, wait. Will Robinson, warning. <laughs> My, and look, the testers that, that have half a dozen, that they, they don't work for me. They, they work for a vendor company, but the, they're very good at exploratory testing. And I work with them on it, and they're very good. And I didn't get the very, very important part. Can they do exploratory testing for an hour or so? Not warning. That's actually, I think that's a reasonable request and commitment. I think... That is like they've done all the work except put the little candle on top of the cake. And what I can do is like, yeah, we'll put the candle on top of the cake because these testers find a lot of really good bugs. So if they're, if, yeah, the, anyway, I, th- I think it's the I right think approach. There's an opportunity there, like in terms of, you know, why I, I set off the warning alarm. I thought you had gas. No. Oh. No. <laughs> um, right. It, you're, you're in. You're on a walking a, a tightrope. You're on a balancing. You're, you're doing a balancing act, and several other uh, appropriate metaphors. I know you're aware of this. You've done this enough, and I know you won't let it cross a certain boundary line. But this is definitely a, a place where they're snug. They're going to be snuggling up close to that boundary line. There's also an opportunity here, though, to Sure, sure, dude. I'll have my guy uh, do uh, ETA, uh, making exploratory test analysis, XTET, <laughs> for an hour under, under one condition. Your two, best, your two best test-centric developers are with him in that room at the same time. In other words... It's an opportunity to teach that team how to fish. Absolutely. And one thing, even shortcutting that, is we had one of the dev managers come to me last week and say, hey, we should do a bug bash. And I said, hey, let's not. So, but, but they're great at finding bugs. I said, we're good at finding bugs already. I said, uh, so I have a different – and 
the bug bash is, you know, everybody sits down and tries to find bugs and I've done those. John Bach, uh, I, th- I think he's the one started writing about session based testing, which I've been doing for actually years before he wrote about it. I just didn't actually have a good name for it, but it's like, let's do a bug bash, but with a small number of people or, or set a, a small, not, not a whole team and with a specific theme or charter in mind, like we're going to look at just this area, but I want to bring up session based testing because I don't have to explain. Uh, I think it's a better approach to the bug bash so people can go look it up, whatever. Uh, what I'm going to do, it's already planned. Part of this conversation was, let's do a bug bash. No, it's not. Why not? Because lots of reasons. But what I want to do is the bug bash isn't for me just about finding bugs. It's a lot about learning about testing and learning about the product. So instead of doing a bug bash with the whole team, I will do a bug bash with a feature team. I'll take a group of developers and we'll sit in a room like Brent and I are sitting in right now. And we'll use that big screen and put the product up there. We'll have some laptops so we can have some interaction, et cetera. And we will walk through testing and we'll test out loud. I've done this before on many teams and it's always very successful. And we will simultaneously find really cool bugs and teach everyone in the room how to be a better tester. Yes. Same outcome, same approach, slightly different implementation of what you were talking about. I was trying to think through because when you said, no, bug bash, like viscerally i felt the same way i'm like no bug bash evil and then i was trying to think through why did i feel that way number one right it's generally yeah you find a crap load of bugs it's generally inefficient two percent are the ones that matter it's generally inefficient to have a large team yes if if, and caveat if you're a small software company of six or seven people by all means i'll get together and have a bug bash yeah but that's sort of my limit um a scrum size a scrum team size is about the about the max limit I want to get involved in a focused, completely session based testing bug bash, etc. But the 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 other reason why bug bashes bothered me is because it's it's also um, a precursor to a stabilization period. In my uh, mind, bug yeah. bashes and stabilization. Let's make the bug ba- but the bug list go up, and then we'll yeah. I, I get it. I get it. Yeah, and it, and it I, I, both I'm, feel equal. I'm drawing bug lines in the air. Yeah. And I'm wondering, is there a way to fix bug bashes by instead of it being the focus on the bug bash, but it's a focus on uh, – it's sort of a process bash. I would never call it this, but um, – because the bugs aren't the problem. The problem is – Something's wrong with how we delivered software that allowed the bug to get in. That's the value. And, and maybe you do the RCA, but as I sit here and, and reflect on the times I've done this sort of thing, the the sort of the focused bug bash is uh, what I've called it before, is I'm actually usually more happy about the learning of the people in the room than I am about the output of the bugs. And we always find like one or two really cool ones. I did some of these in Link, and we had – and you talk about the 2%, we would find like 30 bugs in an hour on a product that was pretty well done, and, and over half of them were things we'd fixed before we shipped. So it was pretty pretty high yield for that sort of activity. But regardless of that, I didn't care about that metric at all. I cared like people were having fun and learning, which is way cooler to me. Yeah, but you can do fun and learning without enabling an old school uh, CYA freaking uh, – bug process that's the whole thing with the stabilization period it's the whole thing with the bug bash like the 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 thing i think is critical is the learning 
And in addition to getting people exposure to the product, like if you do the feature team, one thing that I think would be an interesting experiment is a bug bug bash with the feature team on their own code and that feature team on someone else's feature team code. Yeah, we should... I'll look in. Yeah, I, I have plenty of room to experiment. But with I'll put the it that intent way. of of figuring out why we missed this bug and improving that. Yeah, there's a lot to go here. It's, and again, I don't want to rehash on our team totally, but one of the fun things is just being part of this transition of teaching developers they can test. And we spent a lot of time talking about last time talking about whether yeah. developers could test, and they certainly can. They've just a lot at Microsoft, especially a lot of the developers never had to, but some of them are actually really good at it. They never had to, and when they've been here a long time, they 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 realize that the prevailing belief is that's a lesser job. Well, it's a safety net. It's whatever. Which, which winds back oh. to actually what started this topic. What is, started this topic? Is this, this nice lady talking about the phrase "I can't." Well, I know that was my paraphrase. She didn't say that. She, oh, yeah. she never said I can't. So let's not put words in her mouth. Okay. But the message that came out was she talked. She didn't talk about the negative side. She talked about everything she was able to do because she asked and and the value it gave her. And in my mind, I I heard the opposite of that all the times. I see testers whine and complain about, well, I'm not allowed to do that. I can't do that. We don't do that here. We're not. You know, I don't get to see this. Oh, the stuff. we don't do that here drives me batshit crazy. The uh, one of the teams I was on, <laughs> I've talked about this before. There was a team that I was on when I started it. I found out that um, BVTs hadn't passed in six years. BVTs they have sh- they had shipped three different releases in the six. <laughs> BVTs hadn't passed a hundred percent in six years. Now that was a problem I was very interested in because um, that's extremely rare. <laughs> you don't normally. That's the only time in my career I've ever encountered that situation. Um, and, but there was this element of complacency. That's, that's the, the culture in the org is that they just accept that. Um, that's how things are done. The, the, uh, the team had long since given up. Um, I eventually fixed that by analyzing it and realizing what they had done wrong. They had put... Uh, in essence, all of their end-to-end scenarios in their BVT suite, right? The the suite that oh. has the most number of possible failure points was what they had placed into their BVT suite. Well, that's just stupid. It was a brilliant, I thought. I'm just, they were like, yeah, but if we can get them to pass and keep them stable, then our quality will always be high and we'll move quality upstream. I'm like, yeah, but here's the deal. You can't. <laughs> I, I do want to move on a little bit, but it's interesting. I have one dev manager I work with is very much on that side of the fence. He says, why don't we just run all the tests as part of CI? And I said, well, that's good. Well, you and, can and, and, if and, you do them in phases. As, and, and Do the simplest to debug first. Sure, sure. I gave a talk, uh, a, a webinar, as part of – SDP used to do like these day-long – um, like series of webinar, the webinar which is a series of talks. I, I forgot. I gave one like four or five years ago. And I gave a talk on the simple, powerful BVT. And the idea is the BVT, the build, the basic verification test, build verification test, is that super short, but 
powerful set of tests. It just all it's to let you know is, is it worth investing any more time in this build? I have, I have that. I have uh, my principles on BBTs are twofold. Number one, if it's severely broken, fail fast. Very similar to yours. The second one, though, is there's there's a quality guarantee. And the the thing I said is what I want in the BVT suite is that the BVTs give us an eighty percent confidence that the next suite will pass. Only eighty percent, and not. Not a hundred percent. I don't that I don't want all of that crap in the BBT suite. But it's it's is it worthwhile running the next suite? Yeah, and you can actually that's an easy one to just prove too. Yes. Did eighty percent of the time or more did we uh did the next set next round pass? There's to close off, I don't. I, I have two more things I want to say on this ah, crap thing, and then I'll close it off. Right, I'll leave the room and come back when you're done. No, no, the, I'm going to go quick. First and foremost, if you're ever feeling like you're a victim, this is this is something I tell all of my mentees when they come and go, I can't, or blah 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 blah. Okay, one of the things I think mentors' responsibility is is to help the individual take back control of their own life. Okay, so the speech I use often, you you, you it is not a choice whether or not you're going to be victimized. That's the definition of victimization. But being a victim is a choice. Absolutely. So, yeah, you got dealt a, a bad hand. What you do with that hand is up to you. Now, some people, um, they're happier having, having the label Victim. They will, of course, if you confront them on this, they won't agree with that. But if you look at their behavior, they go, "Yes, this is now part of my identity." Okay, fine. There's nothing. If that makes you happy, that's fine. Just stop talking to me about this topic because it's not something you want to change. the The second thing, when it comes to uh, this this I can't stuff and in this dysfunctional circle of of Dev and Test. One of the things that I have always been very successful with when I go to a new test team and some, some um, uh, dev is trying to test me on this, right? The speech that I use very often and I make sure that my actions and my follow-up words line up with this. Dude, you're just writing code. It's not magic, right? I turn it back. I'm like, look, dude. I'm actually the guy trying to figure out and make quality out of the system. You're just a freaking code monkey. And if you, if you take, maybe not as abrasive an approach, but if you take that similar approach, you'll find that you converge towards something that's respectful very quickly. Sure. I'm done. All right. I'll cut that out of the boring part. Um, so uh, one thing I wanted to cover, I mean to bring this up for a while, and we'll do it in about 10 minutes here at the most because – well, actually, it's not, we're not going to fit it in because you're going to go all rant crazy. So it's interesting that we brought up um, CDT. Uh, those folks uh, are also very much against uh, certifications. For, um, not really against certifications in general. I, I don't have a strong opinion because those don't really affect us here at Microsoft or even in the U.S. that much. Um, and there was a big thing about there's a – I won't go into the whole – 
the new testing standard, which is just idiotic because it it just assumes that test and dev are completely separate, completely separated. Mm-hmm. And so that's, it starts there. It's like not going anywhere. But I I wanted to form my own opinion, so I went and grabbed a couple sample test questions from the ISTQB. Okay. And the great thing is they're multiple choice. And I thought I'd just give you a few, Brent, and see how you do, and see how. And I know you won't see this in podcast land, but I want to see. I will let you know how red. Brent's face turns, and what kind of weird faces he makes as I ask the questions. So this is going to anger me. I'm no. <laughs> these are legitimate questions. I grab these randomly. Oh, I got to do that one in a second. Okay. Now wait. wait. I, I'm the gonna, context I'm, of this test is software testing. Yes, yeah, software testing is the base in a test. generic context. Yes, it's to get your base certification so you can get a job in in, in a lot of places in Europe. Okay. okay. The main focus of acceptance testing is a finding faults in the system. B, ensuring the system is acceptable to all users. C, testing the system with other systems. D, testing for a business perspective. Or E, testing by an independent test team. I'm going to say B. Oh, so sorry. Apparently, the main focus of acceptance testing is D, testing for a business perspective. (laughs) <laughs> All right, let, let me. We don't, we don't need to analyze because I. Let, let's go on to the next question. Oh, this is not going to anger me. This is going to amuse me greatly. <laughs> Test okay. managers should not a report on deviations from uh, the project plan. B sign the system off for release. C reallocate resource to meet resources to meet original plans. D raise incidents on faults they have found, or E, provide information for risk analysis and quality improvement? Uh, I would say, should not all of the above except E? (laughs) (laughs) No, apparently, uh, test managers should not reallocate resources to meet original plans. Brent's making a constipated face. (laughs) Wait, wait, I got another one. This... Ready? What a bizarre! No, no, no! Let, all me, the, let me go. <laughs> how bizarre! Okay, I get, let me do at least one more. Um, unreachable code would best be found using a code reviews, b code inspections, c a coverage tool, d a test management tool, or e a static analysis tool. What's the best way to find unreachable code? What the hell's the difference between a code inspection tool? Did you say code inspection? So a, a code review or a code inspection? Yeah, what's the difference between? Well, them? the uh, code inspection is a formal inspection, a uh, Fagan style inspection where you have a bunch of people in a room and you have like pre work to do, and, and there's one person just takes notes, and it's a very formal process. Okay, so I'm versus gonna, the code. I'm now going to guess based off of what I view as the stupidest answer in the list. Okay, <laughs> uh, clearly a test management tool should to do this. <laughs> Tell me that's right. No, it's unfortunately, it's <laughs> unfortunately code reviews apparently are. Um, although, what was the? Did it say the most effective? It says no. All it says is unreachable code would best be found using code reviews. And I would say no. That's wrong. Their answer is wrong. It's static analysis tools. Static analysis tools are great. There's compiler. Some of the compiler warnings can find unreachable code. Yeah, a code review like. Static analysis tools. I see. I see unreachable they are code. So way much better <laughs> to identify unreachable code I, than code reviews. I can. I have seen unreachable code. You know that thing. You're not gonna. 
you could find that in a code review. Certainly not guaranteed. It depends on on. I, I mean, if the code's really freaking simple. Hey, dude, you have a method here oh. that no one's calling. Okay, I have one more, which is the punchline from this. This should have come up last week. You okay. ready? This is actually part of one of their test questions. And this is a certification. Yeah. Yeah. You ready? I, I'm finding a new You're thing ready? that I agree with the CDT school. Yeah. yeah certifications <laughs> are stupid, but absolutely right. What would by by getting these right? I don't know what you'd prove that you were extremely lucky at guessing stupid answers. <laughs> no, let me put it this way: Would you hire someone that passed this test? <laughs> I don't know. All right. One key reason why developers have difficulty testing their own work is a the existence of a test team. A lack, is that in there? No, because that would be, <laughs> what's the opposite of self fulfilling and be a self dooming pro- prophecy? Right. Okay. Once they realize that testers aren't, I'm going to say aren't needed. Someone will freak out, but aren't always needed. But on you know, you know what I mean. You listening? Maybe not. Brent in the room does. Uh, testers are not needed in the context that this thing's implying. It's like the guy, um, the guy that wrote the article that we reefed on last time. Yeah, ripped, uh, ripped on last. Time. What does reefed on mean? Anyway, he runs a test consulting business. Of course, he's going to say that. So right. anyway, what was the question? One key reason why developers have difficulty testing their own work is a lack of technical documentation, <laughs> b lack of test tools on the market for developers, c lack of training, or d. Lack of objectivity. I know the answer that they want. Yeah, you, you know the answer the, they the want? The answer they want on this one is D, but the actual <laughs> answer is C. You're absolutely right. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely lack of training. It's this idea that, oh, you wrote the code, you can't possibly test it. Is I said it last time, it's stupid. It's just really stupid. Testers, I, I'm going to... Take a deep breath. <sighs> no, but the, it's, it's funny that it's on the test, but you you gave the perfect answer. So I wanted to fill in the blank. It's like, I know you want the answer to be D, but it's C, get over yourself. So going back to data science and, and getting into that training, right? there is so much literature on keeping yourself objective like, because it is the, there's a large series of biases. That it is uh, yes. very easy to get trapped in. Yeah, but only only testers know how to fig- learn biases. Uh, <laughs> hadn't hadn't thought about that. That's that must be why I'm went into data science. It, that's the obvious next yeah. step. Now it, it's it's lack of training for sure, and I would say there's probably even opportunity here. Like TDD, very successful. But there's probably an opportunity here for someone in graduate school looking for their PhD in, in computer science and trying to think of what their thesis should be, how to formalize a listing of biases that devs go that devs can get trapped in mm-hmm. and the solutions and and the way to, to create discipline so that the devs can avoid those biases. Objectivity is a problem for sure lots of uh, scientific disciplines have created means such that the individual can succeed and stay objective because they they acknowledge that that can cause harm Mm -hmm. 
the the issue here is sort of the industry years ago has taken the easy way out. Well, the easiest way to be objective is to get someone else. Independent third party. Right. The thing is, test is never independent. Right. It, it, it's a stupid mantle we put on our head. Uh, there's, I can't tell you how many testers that I've seen that get the same PM spec that the devs get. And that same PM spec influences the, the, the same wrong assumption that dev implemented is the same wrong assumption that test is validating. Yep. Right? It, anyway. I thought you'd like those. I, I, so now I've, I've now formed <laughs> my own opinion. So... That last question, isn't that, that's, the, that's the kicker. You, you fail. Brent, you cannot be a certified tester. Oh, ah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny that I, um, I, I, and to be fair, I don't pay attention to all the rants against certifications. Um, I, I view them from afar and I, I see what's going on there. Um, I haven't seen anybody list the absurdity of the questions before. And if you have, I apologize. And if I've missed it, you know, I'm sure somebody will point me to something. But I've never actually looked at like sample test questions and pulled some out and and realized that oh my god, these really are really bad. I would actually, if there's any of the three listeners that so hashtag we, one of the three, right? If if any of you guys, we we pretty much mocked every single one of these questions. If you actually have a an objective and logical reason why. We shouldn't have done that. I'd love yeah. to hear it on tweet I, us. I, I think the I think the biggest reason for certifications is a lot of companies, especially in Europe. I don't know of a ton in the U.S. who require certifications as part of their for whatever reasons. They I wonder if companies that require certifications for employment actually know what's involved in certifications. Because like like you're right. I don't think I want to hire someone who has one. I'm a, I, I'm, I'm a little afraid of them. I'm actually thinking it would be interesting to sort of see the correlation of companies that hire test teams that are primarily certified and companies that don't that are in similar industries, and to see if you can correlate that certification either adding value or detracting value. That would be interesting. I don't know if that exists. In fact, that should be something that people that run ISTQB and I and I've met Rex before. He's a nice guy, Rex Black, who does a lot of this stuff. And um, but he's he runs a lot of training programs to train people to pass the test, etc. But I think really what I'd like to see him do is show that that data. Do you, are these people people who have certifications actually provide more value in the long run to the to companies the business. They work for? to the yeah to the business right? Because my fear is that these companies that, that do fundamentally do the certification, number one, they're going to be slower. My hypothesis, they're going to be slower than their com- competition, and it's going to cost them more. Yeah. All right. You know what? We're, I, think we're, I think we're about done. We are. There was something else I was going to say. Crud. I don't know what it was, though. Do you remember? Sorry. All right. My memory's worse than yours. Whoa, whoa. All right, I'm Alan. I'm Brent. Hey, we got our names right, and we'll see you next time. Yep. See you.